If Josh Paul was at work right now, he'd be busy, really busy. He spent the last 11 years as a diplomat. Simultaneous wars in Israel and Ukraine meant a whole lot of late night emails and early morning conference calls. But last week, he quit. This was a sudden decision. I resigned because I don't believe that U.S.-provided arms should be provided into a situation where we know they are going to cause massive civilian harm. You're talking about to Israel. Right, and Israel's use of them, particularly in Gaza. Josh resigned with a barn burner of a letter, which he posted on LinkedIn. He said he knew that working with the American government was not without its moral complexity and moral compromises, but that right now, the American response to the war against Hamas was making the world materially worse. This is where I need to explain that Josh is not a run-of-the-mill diplomat. He worked in the State Department, the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Is it fair to say that's like a, a nice way of saying you were a government arms dealer? <laughs> um, I suppose that's true to an extent. I was certainly not. Josh's job was to facilitate the transfer of weapons internationally. It's not like he had truckloads of missiles he was selling. It's more like he decided whether or not American arms manufacturers could legally provide things like jets and tanks outside American borders. Every international sale, it went through his team. As you might imagine, Israel gets a lot of American weapons. In fact, they receive more than half of the global allocation of grant assistance. In the days after Hamas's October 7th attack, Josh says Israel asked for a whole lot more weapons. His bosses were inclined to send them, no questions asked. Josh was not. So he left. So suddenly you find yourself with time. <laughs> you normally would have been getting into work at 7.30 and, you know, processing these arms deals around the clock. Are you relaxed? Uh, no, on the contrary. I, I was saying to a friend yesterday that it's, it's strange. I feel like I left my job last week and yet this week I have more responsibility than I've ever had. I have heard from so many people, uh, both within the US government and around the world, uh, who have been supportive and have asked, you know, what more they can be doing uh, to help press on these issues. Uh, and I have, you know, committed myself to replying to each and every one of them. It's a full-time job. Today on the show, why Josh resigned from the State Department in protest and what his decision says about America's role in this new Middle Eastern war. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. My understanding is that in your last role, you were basically deciding 
about these weapons transfers, specifically whether they advanced U.S. national security goals. What kind of arms were you dealing in here? We are talking about everything from bullets, uh, bullets to bombs, uh, right? But bullets to fighter jets, everything from uh, firearms for police units around the world and special forces units around the world, to radio communications, to tanks, uh, to artillery. You've said you accepted this job knowing there was going to be moral compromise involved. Why did you take the job anyway? Because honestly, it was an immense opportunity to do good. And I felt that every day I was working in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs and in the State Department, uh, I was doing more good and able to touch uh, more important issues than you know many people managed to do in a lifetime. What's good about selling a tank to a government? I don't know. <laughs> like it's it's hard for me to see. So so there are two sides to this coin, right? One is you know look, I'm I'm not a pacifist. I'm not uh, you know fundamentally opposed to the transfer of arms. I think there are situations in which they can do some good, and I would point again to to Ukraine as an example of that uh, in pushing back against Russian aggression. Uh, let's also remember that that not all arms transfers are lethal. I have no problem. Uh, with the provision to Israel whatsoever, for example, of uh, Iron Dome. Uh, I think people have a right to live without uh, fear of rocket fire. I think that's true on the Palestinian side as well, but that's a separate issue. The second part of why I felt that I was doing good uh, was that I, I, I do have a deep concern for human rights. Being within the Political Military Affairs Bureau itself, uh, I had much more uh, access to the decision makers, much more influence on the decisions uh, than I would have had had I been in a, a parallel bureau solely focused on human rights. And so I really felt I was able to uh, debate and in many cases uh, negate uh, or at least mitigate some of the worst uh, of, the, of the outcomes that could have been possible had I not been there. My understanding is that your offices really started ramping up work last year when Russia invaded Ukraine. Can you explain what happened and, and how it impacted you? So I would actually go back further than that. I would say that we really, I mean, it, it's always been busy in the Bureau, but it really ramped up, I would say, under the previous administration. Why? So I think the Trump administration was very focused on re-energizing American manufacturing and American exports. And I think one thing they discovered uh, quite quickly is that the US government doesn't actually have that much ability to impact the uh, manufacturing base. It's a, a capitalist society, and there's only so much the government can do. Uh, the exception to that being arms transfers. And so the Trump administration placed a high priority uh, on arms exports. Uh, and, and so that is really when the work truly began ramping up for the, uh, for the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Uh, and I don't think it has ramped down since. I did read one article that really praised your team for pushing arms out the door to Ukraine, like making decisions suddenly in hours as opposed to months. Yes. Was that a new thing? Um, so, yes, I mean, the, the administration worked much more uh, exped expeditiously on Ukraine uh, than it has before. I will say that there is a difference between, um, you know, once the decision has been made, how fast things move, uh, which is what was happening in the Ukraine instance, uh, where there were still lengthy policy discussions, as opposed to, for example, in this, uh, the current situation with Israel, where uh, everything is moving faster. It's, it's not that there is uh, a lengthy decision, and then we move quickly, it is that there is no debate. Uh, there is just move quickly. How did you hear about what had happened on October 7th in Israel? I, 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 it was a Saturday. I opened my uh, laptop in the morning and looked online, see what was going on in the world, and uh, my jaw dropped. 
you know, I think I was, everyone was shocked, I think, uh, and rightly so, um, by the horror that was uh, inflicted by Hamas on that day. Yeah. Did you immediately spin forward to what this would mean for your work? Uh, it took me, you know, a couple of days to gather my thoughts. And on the Monday that followed, I actually uh, sat down and wrote an email to colleagues that said, uh, you know, maybe maybe this is too soon. I recognize the sensitivities, but, uh, you know, we are going to be receiving a lot of requests for military uh, equipment and assistance uh, from the government of Israel. Uh, we need to take a considered approach. We can't rush into this. Uh, we've seen this movie before, uh, and we've seen the consequences both uh, in terms of the Palestinian civilian casualties, but also uh, in terms of the lack of security it has brought to Israel. But uh, that was let uh, that that um, message was met with uh, silence for the most part. Uh, you know, some folks reached out to say they agreed offline, um, but the guidance from the administration, from the most senior levels, was clearly uh, to set any concerns aside and move forward. And I think we saw Secretary Blinken say uh, over the weekend that there will be time after the operation is concluded uh, to talk about these concerns. Um, I think the time to talk about them is now. Yeah, do you believe there will be time afterward to talk about these concerns? Oh, I believe there'll be time to talk about them. Uh, I don't know that they will be talked about. I'm, I'm deeply skeptical uh, that the United States will actually hold Israel to account uh, for human rights violations, for gross violations of human rights, for civilian casualties. I think there is a track record here uh, and in fact, a, a process that I've been a part of within the US government to review uh, allegations of gross violations of human rights, for which there is a different process for Israel than uh, every other country in the world. And it is a broken process. It has never led uh, to agreement, despite incredibly strong evidence, despite uh, incredibly strong advocacy from human rights officials within government. Uh, it has never led to a conclusion that Israel has committed a gross violation of human rights. Uh, and that is a... Uh, a, a a reason, I think, for skepticism um, that a after-action review would be result in anything different. You've said that once requests started coming in from Israel for security assistance, they were asking for all kinds of weapons, including weapons you say had no applicability to the current conflict. Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so again, I'm going to lean back slightly in terms of decisions that have not been made yet. Uh, and I do believe that some of these decisions actually that were on the precipice of being made uh, still have not been. Uh, and I actually take a bit of heart from that. I think that uh, people are now paying attention to these concerns. But I will say, I think based on the applications and the requests that were coming in from Israel, uh, I think, honestly, my sense was that they see this as an opportunity. Uh, I think they understand that the political winds are shifting in the US and it is getting a bit harder uh, for them to get the sort of blanket support that they have enjoyed in the past. And I think they see this moment as a moment where the doors are open and, you know, they whatever there is that they may need for the coming years, uh, this is a good time to ask for it and to get it. I guess that's practical. It also seems so cynical, <laughs> um, but also not unexpected. Right. I mean, we're talking about, you know, international arms transfers. So I think there's always room for cynicism, right? How did you come to the conclusion that you needed to resign? It was the absence of debate. As I said, I, I felt, you know, even in the toughest of times uh, that I've been able to do more good, uh, you know, in, in one day than I in, in government that I would be able to do in a lifetime outside of it. This was the first time where I have not had that feeling, where I have not seen that there is anything uh, that can be mitigated, debated, 
uh, within government, with Congress, and, and the congressional part is an important part as well, because in the past there's always had been the confidence that, okay, I disagree with this decision, but I'm going to hand it off now uh, to a Congress that does take these concerns seriously. But on the contrary here, uh, what we were hearing from Congress is, why haven't you moved faster? Uh, get going, get going. One thing you've said in previous conversations is that you simply want the U.S. government to follow its own rules when it comes to arms transfers here. I wonder if you can explain that a little bit, because I think what you're referring to here is the new conventional arms transfer policy that said transfers won't be authorized if they are more likely than not to be used to violate human rights. Is that right? That's an important part of it. Uh, The conventional arms transfer policy is only a policy document. Uh, by which I mean that unlike laws or regulations, it does not have to be followed. Hmm. It's just a piece of paper and it says, here's some guidance. It it is just a piece of paper. It's a piece of paper that I think everyone in the arms transfer business takes very seriously. And I've never seen it just set aside in the way that it is being set aside uh, now in this context. And particularly given that the Biden administration's language in there, as you just quoted, is directive. Typically for previous administrations, The conventional arms transfer policy has talked about a framework and said that human rights must be one of the aspects uh, that is considered. uh, Civilian casualties must be one of the aspects that has been considered. The Biden administration conventional arms transfer policy is the first to say definitively that the transfer of arms will not be authorized, quote unquote, when there are uh, there is this more likely than not concern, which there is in this case. And so I think that is my my deep disappointment uh, with with the Biden's approach here is that it is not abided by its own policy. God, I mean, you're, you're really, that's a, it's it's a, quite the thing to say that the Biden administration just made this rule and is violating it within months. Yes, it's, it's, it's again, deeply disappointing. And I think, I think not only for me, but I think for, for many who worked on the document. After the break, is Josh's resignation having any impact? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You left your role last week. Can we talk about what's happened in the days since? Like, first of all, I I wonder if you're hearing from people inside the State Department right now. Yes, I'm I'm hearing from people not only inside the State Department, um, but honestly across government, uh, including from uniformed military, uh, including from uh, officials in other government agencies and in uh, Congress. One person is is, is someone who... uh, used to cover uh, Israel issues in a uh, Defense Department uh, uh, element capacity. 
um, and said that that was the hardest job I ever had because there was never any debating. Um, it was, you know, whatever you want, here you go. And I found that difficult, this person said, um, from a US national security perspective. Others have said um, that they are, you know, encouraged um, by my uh, decision to resign. They cannot follow me because of their own personal circumstances, uh, which I fully respect and understand. Uh, I am I'm myself trying to figure out where I go next for health insurance. Um, but but that otherwise they, they stand with me and they agree with me 100 percent. You know, you've characterized the U.S. government's initial response to the war in Israel as impulsive, almost reflexive. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that in the last few days, there has been some tempering of that impulsivity, limited, but some. Has it seemed like that to you? It has. Um, I, I am obviously not inside government right now. So I am, you know, uh, actions matter more than words. And I don't know what the actions are that are occurring right now. Um, but uh, there has been certainly a, a tempering in the public posture. Uh, and I am hopeful uh, that there is a, a more active debate going on now uh, inside of government than there was when I left. And I think that is because um, you know, myself, sure, but but many others as well uh, have spoken out. And I think the administration does feel some pressure. Uh, I think it helps when they begin to hear in, in numbers from uh, Americans uh, around the country, across the country, of their concerns, of their disagreement. This is a, a ultimately a political decision, and it is political pressure uh, that will impact it. Yeah. I mean, I see the tempering in, for instance, a Washington Post article that reported that President Biden is arguing against a rush to a ground invasion um, with Israel. But I guess I wonder if you think the tempering works if the arms spigot is still open. Oh, I'm sure the arms spigot is still open. Um, I, I know that the arms spigot is still open. Um, I, I, you know, I have I have no doubts, and I I, I don't think that this pressure is going to turn off the arms spigot, uh, certainly not in the short term, uh, and probably not in the you know medium to, to long term either. So does it matter? Yes, it matters deeply. I think that uh, there is a sea change within American public opinion on this topic. Um, and I think there is a disconnect from uh, the political class when it comes to it. There was a poll out last week that I believe said, uh, 53% uh, of, of Americans oppose arms transfers to Israel in this context. I think if you did the same poll of Congress, uh, you would get, you know, probably 427 to 8 in favor. Um, hmm. And so I, I think over time, uh, there will be a change, there will be a shift. Again, I don't know that it's going to come in time for uh, the people of Gaza in this round. But if that shift begins with pressing Israel to do better, with what we are providing it, um, rather than just saying, here you go, have at it. I think that is an important, really important shift. What would course correction look like right now from the U.S. in terms of foreign policy? So first of all, I think course correction would look like following, as we've discussed, our own policies as regards arms transfers. I think it would also involve holding Israel to not a special standard, but to the same standard uh, that we hold all our others and par- allies and partners, uh, for example, in in how we look at uh, human rights potential for human rights violations, uh, and and how lay vetting is applied, 
And then more broadly, I, I think it would require us to really take a sharp look and, and probably a, a radical re-envisioning of US foreign policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, some people have criticized me and said, oh, I'm you know, trying to empower Hamas or I'm against Israel. I think I'm actually making a really pro-Israel discussion uh, that the current path has not led to peace or, or security uh, for people in Israel. Uh, at the same time, it has not led to peace or security for, for Palestinians. And I think that's what we all want, is for everyone to live in, in happiness and in peace and security, to just live their lives, raise their families without concern, uh, without the humiliation of checkpoints, without the fear of rockets. Uh, and the current path is not leading there. You mentioned criticism you've gotten. And I know that some conservative journalists have heard you telling your story and said, you have a martyr complex. <laughs> I wonder if you've read that criticism and, and what you make of it. No, no, I, I haven't uh, read that. Look, I, I made a serious decision uh, about my own career that has consequences for me uh, because I felt it was the right thing to do. I think the argument was that, you know, I don't know, that you're <laughs> that you're making yourself the center of the story, I guess. Yeah. I mean, look, this is I, I, I've never been in a situation like this and I, I didn't anticipate the situation that I'm in. Um I do have a megaphone right now. I, I won't have it for long. I recognize what news cycles are like. Uh, and I do intend to use it while I have it on this issue uh, because I think it's really important. And I, I want civilians to stop getting killed in Gaza. So uh, what I would say is, you know, look, this is, this is for me, it has been a week beyond imagining. Uh, it's a transient week. It will pass. While I've got it, I'm, I'm going to speak up on these issues. Uh, but once it's gone, I cannot wait uh, to not be in the spotlight. <laughs> Do you think about what you do next? You have such an interesting skill set. <laughs> yeah, thank you. The problem is that it's uh, really only applicable within government uh, for the most part. Uh, and I don't know that I'm going to get uh, any offers to come back into government ever again. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I, I don't have anything lined up. Um, as I say, you know, in the short term, I'm, I'm focused on this issue. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I need to step back and, and think about where I go from here and what I do from here. Yeah, it's funny. You, you said that you made this kind of deal with yourself when you took the job with State, where you were like, I, I'll leave if this pushes me past a boundary. Did you always kind of have a resignation letter in your drawer just in case? I did under the previous administration. I threw it away at the start of this administration uh, and I guess had to rewrite it. Um, but yeah, I've always been ready to, to leave if I felt that I, I you know, could not stay. Um, um, I'm, I'm saddened uh, that these are the circumstances in which that happened, because as I think you know may have come across in, in our discussion, there's a lot this administration is doing that I think is right. Josh, I'm really grateful for your time and your honesty. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Josh Paul is a former State Department official. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.
At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.